Welcome back to the Pacific Century, the podcast about America, China, and the fate of the Indo-Pacific and world. I am Michael Misha Oslin, a fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I am joined by my partner in crime, John Yu, professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. John, say hello to everyone. Hello, everybody. And you can even hear me through my mask. Yes, well, not not if you were Representative Matt Gretz and you were wearing a World War One level gas mask as he was on the floor of the Congress earlier today, proudly tweeting out a picture because it is Corona, 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 and obviously we're not talking about the Mexican libation. So, John, why don't you kick us off for this special no bat all Corona episode of Pacific Century? Well, the day we're taping, also, before I start on this, Misha, I wanted to wish you happy anniversary. You have no idea, but today is the one-year anniversary of our podcast. Oh, my Go gosh. back and look at the archives. We started on March 1st. 2019. And if you go look at what we talked about, the issues are completely different than what we're talking about today. We were worried about North Korea, Huawei, and Americans t- uh, arrested in China. <laughs> it's really John, interesting. The difference year makes. I agree. I think we should do a podcast just on the Pacific Ocean, because that'll never change. <laughs> That's been there forever. It'll be here forever. And it's much easier. But it shows why we have this podcast is because the issues going on in the Pacific with the United States and China, all these changes just as fast as American politics and in some ways are just as important. So take this coronavirus. Is that now that we are uh, taping the show today, there are about 100,000 cases. 80% are still in China. China has about 80,000 cases. 3,000 people have died. Compared to where else it's been, the United States isn't doing so badly. Right now, the United States has 177 cases, although that figure obviously is going up. 11 people have died, but that barely, I think, if I look at places as maybe in the top 10, South Korea is second, 6,000 people, 35 deaths. Italy, surprising, 3,800 people and 148 deaths. And then another surprising one, Iran is fourth. 3,500 cases, 107 deaths. But many people think Iran and China are both understating the spread of the disease. Uh, And and then just quickly, the state of things here in the United States, I think personally, uh, people are starting to panic. But the largest concentration of cases are actually in Washington state, which has had 70 cases, 11 deaths. And then right here, Northern California, We have 45 cases, one death. In fact, uh, the California government is holding offshore a cruise ship, but refusing to allow it to dock in San Francisco Bay. I was actually looking forward to seeing it dock from my office window in Berkeley uh, because a person from that ship contracted and died from the coronavirus. And so the uh, government is worried that these several, I think 2,000 people on the ship may well have it because I think only half the people disembarked. Uh, another half got on. Uh, the ship was on its way to Hawaii and was turned around and sent back to San Francisco. And they are, I believe, airdropping from helicopters the testing kits. Uh, and I'm sure that the whole ship will be quarantined for several weeks uh, in, in San Francisco, just off San Francisco or in San Francisco Bay. But you get the sense people are starting to panic. The stock market has dropped uh, more than 10%. Uh, people are worried now the economy is going to slip into recession. Uh, 
You hear talk about potential nationwide uh, travel restrictions, perhaps even quarantines. Uh, people are going to Walmart and Costco and buying out stocks of water. I, I was in Target over the weekend. I saw a little old lady running out of Target with a box full of ramen, baby wipes, and water <laughs> before there had been a reported case in my hometown. So That's I, probably going to get her sicker than coronavirus. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, I don't know, John. Start- John, I, I don't know if people are panicking. I've been out of my house for two weeks. So I haven't I haven't seen anybody panic because it's very calm know, through, in my house. Through your, multi, through your multiple video cameras you've got surrounding us, you don't see anybody. The electrified <laughs> fence. I literally never thought I would say I'm happy to be in D.C., but uh, we we in the Delmarva area, well, at least the Maryland, Virginia, D.C. area, have no reported cases because we're superior beings in the United States of America. Uh, and I can't believe what's going on in California. In fact, Palo Alto has a, uh, a vet in the hospital with coronavirus. Virus and and a cluster out in Santa Clara County. Yeah, and it's because I think it's uh, any part of the country that has a lot of traffic and commerce and travel with China and South Korea and Italy, which means the major cities on the coasts are going to have higher cases. But uh, but let's stop talking about America just briefly and talk about China. So, uh, Misha, you've had several pieces out in the press Uh, talking about what this means for the leadership of China. So what's your take on how the coronavirus is affecting uh, the regime of Xi Jinping and the Communist Party uh, in China? Well, well, first, before we do that, I I just want to briefly say how how personally disappointed and crushed that I am that my Wall Street Journal piece did not cause an international incident the way that Walter Meads did. And and yet I used the term the sick man of Asia in 2009. Hmm. But I wasn't talking about China. I was talking about Japan. And yet, shockingly, Tokyo didn't boot out American reporters and they didn't call for me to be had my head chopped off and and cut you know cut off of Twitter and the like and it actually I think John goes goes to your question this is uh, I think look the truth is I mean to be very honest we have absolutely no idea in the sense who knows how this will all turn out but I deep down believe this is a black swan turning point in mm. the world's relations with China which I, I was hesitant to. Um, uh, you know, sort of accept or, or or even articulate publicly, but I don't think it's going to go back to the way it was. Now, uh, just to caveat it, and as uh, a former leader of the United States used to say, let me be clear, I'm not talking about uh, China's not going to be a huge economic power or that there's never going to be trade or there's never going to be exchange. But I, I, you know, given what this coronavirus has has been and, and the way it's spreading, uh, the way the Chinese botched it in the beginning, um, you combine it with the, the people who are aware of the African swine fever, of the avian flu. I just I don't think the world's going to go back to looking at China in the same way. I think we have turned a corner in a what's going to be a much harsher assessment uh, of China. And this goes uh, not just to the issue of of how does the world deal with China, but to your question, John which is, what does this mean for Xi Jinping? What does it mean for Beijing's leaders? Um, For millennia, the issue of meritocratic competence is what 
defined uh, the bureaucratic elite in China. It's what gave them authority to rule. And when, of course, that collapsed, then the, the regime, the dynasty, whatever political system was in play at the time, was called into question and and, and uh, entered into perilous territory. Um, I don't think we should say that the Communist Party is going to collapse, but I don't think the world is ever going to look at China in quite the same way as it has. Well, you have this... Uh almost like a game theory type problem with China is that, and this came up with SARS, is just that China was not such a large part of the world economy uh, at that time. But right, the uh, Chinese government, and we saw that with the lower officials, have an interest in understating how bad an outbreak is in the beginning because they're worried about exactly what's happened. People stop traveling to China. People stop buying things from China. The economy is going to suffer in China, and the Communist Party looks bad. But it is in the interest of the rest of the world to get as much information immediately upon an outbreak. For example, here, it seems I think there were like three to four weeks where China pretended nothing wrong was going on, right. and people were still traveling into and out of this region, bringing the disease back and forth. So I think, I, I, I told you something, you're, you're talking about people in China itself losing faith in their government. I also think uh, that this is just going to turn more countries away from China. They see what can happen with this kind of authoritarian regime that doesn't have open press, that doesn't have a robust open political system, and where information is suppressed and controlled. It goes to a point you've made, I think, several times, Misha, in the podcast. China doesn't have allies. They don't have friends. Uh, they have to buy their influence. And I think this is just going to make things worse for China on the global stage. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. In, in, a, in a sense, they face a, a two-front crunch, right, which is at home, which is very dangerous for them. And, and as you said, abroad, I mean, including uh, potential extremely negative impact on the economy. It's probably already happening. And I think the world is is going to, to be utterly skeptical of anything that China says from now on. Uh, you'll notice that Xi Jinping disappeared for a few weeks. Um, he was right. letting his lieutenants, you know, basically get out there. And then he came out, but he didn't, he never went to Wuhan. He never went to the epicenter. Um, well, he, he didn't want to catch the flu. No, exactly. Right? So, you know, <laughs> I mean, the other he was thing, in his in his his escape room in the Forbidden City. Right. <laughs> Look, the other the right the safe the safe room, right? The safe house. Um, yeah. The uh, the other thing uh, that I think is um, is important uh, for to recognize is that. Um, in terms of the narrative that they have been trying to create now, um, this this just sort of blows that it blows that out of the water, uh, and it you know Xi Jinping has spent seven years building up ideological authority, uh, and this really cuts deeply at it. So I, I think the big question is, what do they do? And one thing that you're seeing, and I would caution all of us to take with a real big grain of salt, is they are putting out a full court PR press now to tell the world how they've turned the corner on this. The number of infections are down, uh, that they, you know, they were using this incredibly frighteningly sophisticated uh, algorithmic uh, cell phone matching to sort of figure out where clusters were popping up and who had traveled to what cluster. And this allowed them to contain it. Um, they are trying to put a positive spin. I mean, really what they're doing is saying, see, the rest of you guys in the world are, are now 
falling into the abyss of coronavirus, and we have turned it around. It's it's almost an analog of what you saw with the 2008 financial crisis, which is you guys in the West don't know how to deal with this, but look at us. Uh, we've insulated ourselves. And, and quite frankly, I think it's a lie. I think the world will never know, number one, where this virus came from, because they haven't let anything but one small WHO team into the country, and they're preventing it from free access to all of the medical and scientific information it needs. Uh, we'll never know how many people had it. We'll never know how many people died. Uh, and, you know, we should not let China off the hook for this, especially if, as some of the epidemiologists are saying, this could become a seasonal thing. Oh, I, I totally uh, take your point. You've, uh, I have uh, friends who, and former students who are Chinese nationals who are here working. They don't trust anything the Chinese government is saying. They, their friends back in China are telling them about lots of people dying uh, of the flu who are not counted in official statistics. But as you say, no one can be sure that this government is telling the truth. But I wanted to follow up on this uh, point, this kind of black swan point you made. You, you said that you don't think that this is going to overthrow the Communist Party uh, as the governors of China, but... Do you think that this poses a threat to Xi Jinping's own uh, rule, that you could see a challenge to his leadership, or you could see, as we saw when he first took over, regional uh, challengers who want to return either to a more Maoist approach or would might, other kinds who might want to more fully embrace uh, Western ideas of government? It's a great question. I think that to, to start from before the beginning, this is precisely the type of thing that Xi Jinping has been preparing to insulate himself against for seven years, not coronavirus, mm. a crisis that calls into question his credibility as a leader. Uh, you know, he has, if, if you read, um, for example, some of the, the great work that Minchin Pei over at Claremont has been doing in looking at how party documents and leading documents now refer to him, it's, you know, as the core of the party and the, and the job of the party is to support the core and the part of the the job of the people is to support the party. I mean, all flowing up in this hierarchical way. Uh, all of this has been, in essence, to to create um, uh, sort of circuit breakers between him and, and a crisis. And that crisis could have been the Senkakus with Japan. It could have been the South China Sea. It turned out to be coronavirus. Uh, so he is ahead of the curve, as, as all good uh, authoritarians are, in attempting to foresee that the type of rule he wanted to impose is one that could open him up for attacks at home, most importantly from inside the elite, not not from outside. You can control that a little bit easier than you can, you know, control someone inside the palace. Um, and that's really where it's going to come from. Uh, I don't think we're going to, to see it. Uh, there were, for example, uh, a couple of... Um, uh, I guess you'd call them public intellectuals, professors uh, who are who are well known to the China Watcher community, who've already been critical of Xi Jinping, coming out with new uh, critiques on how he botched all this coronavirus response needs to step down. They've been disappeared for now. Uh, no one knows where they are. So the, the apparatus of the state, as we saw in the first few weeks of this, instead of trying to control the virus, tried to control the social reaction, tried to to uh, um, uh, uh, you know, control social media to uh, to guard and monitor social media and make sure that this did not spill out into a political problem. And so all of that, of course, is to protect the party, but the core of the party, Xi Jinping. Um, if, if China 
somehow has has really lied about this and blown it, and it suddenly becomes something that can no longer be denied that this is a pandemic within China, if I guess you can have a pandemic within one country, uh, then I think he, he can be at risk from inside the party. We've talked about this. There are still other elements and other factions that haven't been uh, accommodated to his power, uh, and this can be the perfect excuse for him to uh, to be taken down. And that's, I think, by the way, one reason you saw him disappear for a few weeks, because the other leaders were out there. They were the public face of coronavirus. So if it didn't work, then you could blame them because they were the ones doing all of the, the meetings that were getting the attention. Another interesting thing, uh, and maybe we could switch to the economics of it, is, as you said, the Chinese are out saying, look, we've uh, turned the page on this. You know, we use these very, you know, what I would think are draconian quarantine methods, which could not ever be used or would succeed in the United States. But I think the other thing it showed is still how uh, fragile and weak the Chinese economy is. I, I mean, I, I was, I was uh, talking to some uh, Chinese uh, nationals who were defending the government's response, and I said, well, if you thought you might get the coronavirus, which country would you rather be in, China or the United States? And of course, the answer is the United States, because our public health system is just far superior to China's. I think you're. I think China just refused to just stop treating people uh, who had uh, the virus, uh, and then, and I think we have just unreliable statistics again about how many people actually had it and how many people uh, died from it. But I think you're, you're seeing the difference between a sort of more open, less controlled market-based response here versus a sort of authoritarian, centrally controlled response in China. Yes, they can try to quarantine people. They can use the brute force of the state. But where's the vaccine going to come from? <laughs> Where is, uh, you know, wh which part of the world has more medical resources? Um, I, t I take it the uh, drug that has so far proven successful, most successful at least, in treating the coronavirus is an AIDS drug because what the AIDS drug does is created by Gilead Sciences right up the street from uh, Hoover here. Um, in inhibits the ability of viruses to replicate themselves. Apparently, this has been the most effective treatment. Uh, that was invented here in the United States. Uh, I think Gilead is going to give it a cost to China, uh, and China might just steal the intellectual property from it and just make it itself. Um, but that was not invented in an authoritarian, centrally controlled system. And so I think that Again, it's showing. I think I see fragility here in the Chinese economy, and it might get worse for them because, as you said in the beginning of the show, this may not just have political consequences, but you might start seeing businesses uh, start to look for other alternatives to China in their supply chains, given that right, you saw large parts of the Chinese economy just shut down for two three weeks under these quarantine orders. Yeah, I think um... – you know, at some point, probably need a real trade person, a real economist to come in. It's sort of sort of unprecedented. I mean, you've got what was the number? Something like three hundred million students around the world are are at home. They're not in they're not in schools. Japan has shut down its schools. Uh, Italy has shut down its schools, or at least northern Italy has. Uh, in Seattle, they told all two point two million people that Seattle uh, County, King County, I think it is, or yep, King County, uh, to to stay home, work from home. I mean, it's you know, it's un unprecedented what it is, I have type to of admit, effects this can... It is a teacher's dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, the students have to stay home. 
Exactly. Uh, for the students, it's the dream. I know, but the that's teachers, right. Everybody, love it's it. win-win. Um, but um, you know, for for uh, for China, um, with an already weakening economy, economy that's been buffeted for two years by the trade war with the United States. Uh, Again, you know, John, who can trust the numbers? I mean, if 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 after this China comes out and says we hit our six point two percent growth target, I mean, everybody should just throw up, you know, roll eye roll, global eye roll, and just say, come on, it's impossible. So, what here here's something else to be, um, I, I think, f- to to be aware of in the sense of how the narrative is is trying to be shaped by some, including in China and some outside of China. Uh, as you know, and as we've talked about, and our our loyal listeners know, you know there is a real debate going on inside the China watching community in the United States uh, over the, the Trump policy and and whether we should be engaging with China or, or maintaining a hard line. And there is an analog that's come out through coronavirus, which and it's being you know re- repeated by many at the very you know top of the the social feeding scale here, which is this is going to force liberalization on the party. The party must become more transparent or it will lose entirely the support of the people. Um, from our perspective, that makes perfect sense. From the perspective of the party, it makes absolutely no sense. Um, and we have heard calls for this. We heard it after uh, SARS and we've heard it after the, uh, the the earthquake in Sichuan and we heard it after the high speed rail and we've heard it over and over. It does not mean that it won't happen this time. It is entirely possible. But again, the world continues or as elements of the world continue to read into China what they want to see. I think, though, that underneath there is a really deep layer of skepticism that has that has been activated by all of this. And, and people will simply not look at China in the same way ever again. And as you pointed out, a part of that is businesses. So uh, we, we actually, John, have a friend in, in common, or at least someone you, you know and is a friend of mine who has all of his business product produced in China. And he came up to me the other week and and said, am I going to have to get all my stuff out of China? Because if I do, I don't know where to put it. No one else makes it. And I said to him, look, I mean, obviously, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm not a business consultant, but if this thing becomes cyclical, meaning if you as a business person now can no longer have confidence, long-term confidence in the uh, sustainability, durability, and accountability of the Chinese economy the way that you have until now, even with all of the problems, but in general, production, somebody's going to make a move. Either it's going to be a competitor of yours is going to figure out, well, you know what, I can make this, have this made somewhere else and have reliability, or you're going to do it. China is really on the precipice of a much more fundamental, to use the popular word, decoupling than I think people realize, especially if this goes away in the summer because of the warmer temperatures and then pops right back up in in next fall. Then I think you're going to see a, a, but the potential of a much more fundamental shift. Yeah, interesting. I think this actually provides the opportunity for the United States and its allies to create competitive economic systems to China. As you say, if you're a businessman, businesswoman, you depend on China for your supply chain, and you just haven't had any products for three, four weeks, this is affecting things, everything from the auto industry to generic drug manufacturers. Well, there's a lot of other countries in Asia which can do 
uh, low-cost, higher-quality manufacturing now. You could shift to places which have which are more friendly to the United States, places like Thailand, Vietnam, of course, South Korea and Japan, Taiwan. You could go on and on, and this could create the opportunity. And this is my uh, next question for you, Misha, is what should the United States do in response? I would say this creates the opportunity for the United States uh, to encourage its security and economic partners in the region to come up with alternatives to China so that we're not dependent on China for key, key critical technologies or resources. And I think this will be good for those other countries in the region, and it will be good for the United States to build those alliances and make them stronger and not be so reliant on what's an increasingly uh, hostile, again, authoritarian regime. Yeah, I, um, it's hard to do. I, I certainly agree with you. Um, you know, if you look at it from the the business perspective, uh, there's there there are a few other options. There are some places, but the scale's not there. It can't be Vietnam. It can't be Malaysia. It's too small. Vietnam, not enough infrastructure. Actually, you know, China has more. Uh, working age population or, or more 20 year olds than all of Vietnam. I mean, it just, it is hard for businesses to make that move, but I think that events will force it on them, number one. Um, number two, uh, you know, the world has just become so used to dealing with China that just making that mental shift away is actually going to be hard, though I think that the, the obverse that I've been talking about, this deep unease and skepticism, whether you're business, you're a student, uh, you're, you're uh, you know, scholar, whatever, of, of going to China in a way that you probably didn't think that much about until until recently. The security angle, I think, is very interesting. Um, I, you know, it, I think a lot of it depends on how China acts after this, meaning if, if you have that sort of classic case of attempting to divert attention at home by adventurism abroad or some sort of nationalistic policy that will, you know, rally the, the people around the flag and, and more particularly around Xi Jinping again, yeah, then I think, you know, there's that possibility ability for, first of all, clear-eyed analysis to say, look, they're taking advantage of this crisis, uh, and it shows simply how much more uh, irresponsible and dangerous uh, they are. I mean, if they keep their head down and they they talk about, you know, collective effort and cooperation and the like, I mean, not that anyone should necessarily believe it. I think that it'll, you know, people, again, have become so invested in China for so many decades that, again, it is hard uh, to either break away or, in the case of security, where a lot of the countries in, in Asia as well as the world have attempted, for the most part, a studied neutrality between the United States and China to suddenly jump ship, you know, and say, okay, we're, we are completely in this other this other grouping now because we just don't trust China, we don't like it, and we're, we're, we're scared of it. Um, in some ways, it's been moving in that direction, and, and it really is all case by case. But um, I, I think a lot of this really depends on how uh, Beijing manages the aftermath of, of corona, or if we find out that, you know what, they're not managing it, and, and it's just running rampant, rampant through China, and there's still however many hundreds of millions of people in quarantine for the foreseeable future. Well, look, the other country we didn't uh, mention is India. And even while the coronavirus outbreak was steadily uh, gaining momentum, President Trump went to India and had a I think an overwhelmingly positive reception. There were no uh, signed trade deals, uh, but I think it was a, quite a symbolic uh, statement of the ever-growing 
ties between the two countries, which uh, has been has been going on since uh, the Bush administration, first the second Bush administration, uh, and that would be the natural uh, place I, I would think where businesses could go. They have the size and scale. They don't have the infrastructure yet. They have the population in terms of youth as well, and they have a they have a security interest along with us of containing China, and they are. The world's largest democracy, <laughs> and so uh, you know, in some ways, they have some of the same uh, challenges that we do in the United States: a diverse population, different religions, different ethnic groups, um, but uh, a democratic process, and, and at least a growing market economy, uh, which starts and fits. But they might be a. I think they stand to gain, and with and our alliance with them uh, could be all the stronger because of this. Um, yeah, I, I certainly think, agree. Yeah. We've we've all hoped for more from the the, the relationship with India. It's it's come enormous leaps and bounds uh, in the past twenty years. The Bush administration, the W. Bush administration, really made incredible progress. Uh, civil nuclear agreement and the like. I think it stalled out under Obama, uh, but Modi and Trump uh, have a, a very close relationship. A lot of people don't like that, but it's a very close relationship. Um, and you're right. I think I don't think there's a silver bullet. Um, you know that there's just one thing, which is let's all turn to India. And I know you're not saying that. I think though this is the opportunity to rethink everything, right? So everyone's seen the, you know, the Wall Street Journal article and others about how Apple you know, bet everything on China. 100% of Apple's products are made in China. Mm. And now they are in significant trouble, right? Um, mm. or, or at least were for a period, and who knows. So, uh, but now you think you can rethink everything. I mean, one thing, look, Brexit, finally, you know, now is time to really get a serious US-UK FTA, bring Japan into that FTA, figure out, uh, you know, I think the administration potentially is a little bit more sympathetic to figuring out something with um, uh, the TPP. Uh, you know, it's 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 not uh, for certain, but this this should show us that we need, as you put it, a, I think you put it a more diversified um, production community around the world, set of relationships. Uh, this is this is time overdue. Uh, and sometimes you need a crisis. And, you know, in the words of Rahm Emanuel, don't let a crisis go to waste, you know, take advantage that you're not caught short again. Rahm Emanuel, the former mayor of Chicago, <laughs> he let too many crises not go to waste. But let's let's close. We have just a few minutes left. Maybe we could close out by uh, talking about what's happened in China with the coronavirus suggests for the United States. And uh, one thing is you could you see people in the press, even today, saying, oh, why can't we have a government more like China? It's sort of this Thomas Friedman-esque uh, utopian view of China as, oh, why can't we have bullet trains and why can't we have nice airports? Uh, you know, forgetting that the cost is a central government that takes everyone's property, uh, builds things at accelerated rates with poor safety standards uh, and so on. And it's the same thing, I think, with the coronavirus. You know, the United States government actually has quite a bit of legal authority to try to stop the spread of any harmful disease uh, going up to and including uh, involuntary quarantines. Uh, you know, there has been no such national quarantine since the Spanish flu epidemic at the, in the aftermath of World War I, which some people are comparing the coronavirus to in terms of its uh, mortality or lethality. Um, you, so you could see that happen, but I just can't see 
uh, American society and our legal system, political system, tolerating the kinds of things you saw in China where you had uh, police out, refusing, you know, preventing people from leaving their homes or only allowing people out just to get uh, food at the supermarket for a very limited amount of time. Uh, people, you know, the government breaking up any gatherings of people and arresting people on the street who weren't wearing uh, masks. Masks themselves, which are surely not the N95 mask, which is the only one that would actually protect you from getting the coronavirus through the air. Um, and so I think uh, one, I think one result of this is it's not going to be possible in the United States as it was in China, perhaps if we believe what they say, to geographically limit the spread of the disease. Eventually, because of the open nature of our society and our country. And the fact that the coronavirus has symptoms that look like the common cold for a lot of people, so they are carrying it and they don't know. Uh, but that's going to mean it's going to spread throughout our society and spread around it pretty quickly. But because of our superior health system, I would expect we see far fewer uh, deaths and serious cases than you saw in China, which is kind of probably what happens with a lot of public health problems compared to between China and the U.S. But we, I think that's the price we pay for having our sort of open, free market, democratic system where the government doesn't try to tightly control everybody's life. Yeah, you know, the, one analog would be the uh, the brief Ebola scare that we had a few years ago, um, where in, in Dallas, I was actually in Dallas when, when the person came down with Ebola, and there were a couple other cases, um, and the, the cases that had been transmitted here, as opposed to caught over there. So I think the guy who came to Dallas that had Ebola from somewhere else died, but the nurses and the others who contracted Ebola, and it was just, I mean, it was a tiny handful, they didn't die, right? And until then, everybody thought Ebola was a death sentence, right? It was 100% mortality yes. or whatever it was, right? So you're right about the our our uh, superior uh, healthcare system. Uh, I think there's a lot of authorities that the state governors have uh, that they are able to do as well uh, as, you know, United States government looking at borders, but things that the state governors can do. Uh, and it, this is, it, it really, look, it's a 350 million person country. Um, you just look at what's happened in New York over the past week, uh, the way that this can uh, can transmit so quickly and blow up so quickly. Uh, and yet, as you pointed out, what, under 200 cases and 350 million. Now, let's wait a few weeks. Let's see what happens. But um, this is is not what we saw in, you know, in China, where, you know, depending on if, if they have the mortality rate right, then people are saying the number of infections have to be actually much, much higher. There has to be, uh, you know, a million plus people infected mm -hmm. and not the several tens of thousands that they're saying uh, are infected. And of course, what that means then is that this is uh, more deadly than the regular seasonal flu, but much less deadly than SARS or MERS. Yes. Well, on that happy note, let's uh, bring yeah, this Yeah, the one ray episode. of sunshine. This isn't <laughs> MERS, folks. That's the happy takeaway for today. Yeah, let's bring this episode to a close on our first anniversary of the podcast. And Misha, I just took a quick look. On your first anniversary, guess what the gift is supposed to be? Paper. 
how did you know that? That's incredible. I had no idea. Amy. As you can tell, I didn't get anything on my first anniversary. I'm so sorry, John. Happy anniversary. I'm going to send you a box load of paper. Um, but I'm told that there's a modern gift. The modern gift these days is a clock. And that oh. clock says, unfortunately, <laughs> that this episode <laughs> has to come to an end. So I'd like to thank uh, my co-host, Misha Oslin. Uh, thank the Hoover Institute. Thank Scott Emmergood, our great producer. And uh, see you all next time on the Pacific Century. Bye-bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org. 